There are on average 1.6 planets for every star in our galaxy. If this is typical for all galaxies, then there are more planets in the universe than stars. How do we find exoplanets? How many and what types are there? Can any of them harbor life? Exoplanets on this episode of Space Junk Podcast. You're listening to Space Junk Podcast with Tony Darnell and Dustin Gibson. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. A little bit later on, I'm going to be talking with Dustin about how to choose your very first astro-imaging subject. How to get started? Where should you look first with your new imaging rig? But before we get to that part, I want to talk about exoplanets, one of my favorite topics. I don't know. I kind of feel like I watched this new branch of astronomy get born. So anybody who's listened to any of my content for any length of time knows that I started my career at the High Altitude Observatory in Boulder, Colorado, and it is primarily a solar observatory. They operate a an observatory on Mauna Loa in Hawaii, and they observe the sun in many different wavelengths. And I started out there as a student assistant while at, uni- while at the University of Colorado, and I got to, it was my first big exposure into what it was like to work in science. And one of the guys, Dr. Tim Brown, was had his own little group of people huddled in the floors of the observatory, and he was doing something really, really cool. He had a shed observatory. I'm not kidding. It was a roll-off shed in the parking lot of the building in Boulder that housed an old, or what looked to me like an amateur telescope. Now, this would have been back in the mid-90s, about 1995 or so. And this was the very first time I had ever been exposed to exoplanet studies. Now, what Tim et al. had in the, in the, the I want to call it a garage shed, but it, it, it wasn't. It was a professional observatory, but it looked very amateur uh, in its, in its you know, general appearance. Is, and inside there, he had a 10-centimeter F2.9 Schmidt camera, and it was mounted on an LX200 mount, which was the same kind of mount I had at the time. And it had as a camera a 2K by 2K CCD. Now, when I saw this sitting out in the back parking lot, I was like, what's that? And it turns out it was part of something called the STARE project, S-T-A-R-E. And its job was to look at 24,000 stars in the constellation of Auriga. It had a 5.7 degree field of view. Remember, this is a Schmidt camera, very short focal length. Now, it also looked in other constellations, Andromeda, Bootes, Lyra, other constellations. But this telescope was used by an astronomer. And at the time, he was a graduate student. His name was David Charbonneau. And he used this telescope to confirm the first exoplanet that was ever found, HD 209458b. And he did this in 1999. This exoplanet was first found by another gravitational or by another um, ground-based observatory using something called the radial velocity method, which I'll get into here in just a minute. But Dave Charbonneau used this Schmidt camera to verify that it was in fact an exoplanet in orbit around this star by using something called a transit. I'll talk about that also. But what I really want, the point I really want to make here is that this was 1999 and I was 
present. Now, I don't know of anybody that did this beforehand, although I'm sure there were many people that were doing it beforehand, but not many. We're looking for planets around other stars and trying to infer their uh, existence. And this was, like I said, in 95 through 99, and I got to see these guys at work looking for planets around other stars. So I kind of feel like this topic and my career uh, are kind of entwined in, a, in an interesting way. We both began our careers at about the same time. And I believe that, you know, the early 90s, mid 90s would have been the unofficial start of the exoplanet astronomy branch of astrophysics. And so I love this topic. Now, the first exoplanet that Stare actually found was called uh, it discovered itself was called Ogle TR-56b. And this was the very first time that a transit method exoplanet was found. This was in 2003, and it was using this system, the, the uh, 10 centimeter F2.9 Schmidt camera. Nowadays, I was looking at the website, sort of a walk down memory lane, and I went to uh, the, just do a, if you just do a Google search on STARE, S-T-A-R-E, and then H-A-O, you'll, you'll come up with this site. It's a very Web.0 based website. And uh, it, it says that the telescope is now being operated in, in Tenerife and the Canary Islands. But the last time that website was updated was 2005. So I don't know whatever happened to this. But the study of exoplanets began at around this time period. And we'll we'll talk about all the different methods they use to find these things but since this time we've come a really really long way we've launched several space telescopes in the interim we've had kepler go up we've also got tess up there right now uh looking who's who's these these are telescopes that are dedicated to looking for exoplanets now since then we've come a really long way since the early 90s in this in this in this sort of amateurish looking shed telescope observatory parking lot arrangement. We've actually launched multiple space telescopes that were designed specifically for finding exoplanets. First, there was Kepler, which was launched in the early 2000s. It looked at one spot in the sky, the constellation of Cygnus the Swan, for five years. Actually, it did it for closer to six years before it, it one of the reaction wheels went down. And it stared at over a hundred thousand stars for over those five years who's and the main thing it was trying to do was to look for tiny dips in brightness of little time of, of of stars as a planet moved between the telescope and the star itself that's called the transit method and then we've and right now we have tests which is the transiting exoplanet survey satellite it's in orbit right now above the earth looking at the entire sky not just cygnus but the entire sky and it's been going on now at, on this for at least three years now. And I know its mission has been extended uh, for another two. So it is still up there looking for transiting planets uh, across their stars. And then, of course, there are a myriad of ground-based telescopes also looking for, ground, for exoplanets as well. So let's, let's take a step back and let's sort of think about how we found them. I, I, I've mentioned several times something called the transit method. This is the primary way that we have found exoplanets. We found most of the uh, exoplanets that we know of via this method. And all it is, it's very simple, is it looks at a star for a really, really long time, and it measures 
a dip in brightness as a planet that might be in orbit around that star moves in front between the star itself and the telescope looking at that star. Now, as you can imagine, this has this has to be just aligned just right. You know, we can't, there can be stars around other planets that we would never see because in this method, because the, the line of sight would be such that the, when the, when the planet moves between us and it, it wouldn't cause a dip in brightness. So it requires a per, a perfect alignment of the star, the planet's orbit and the telescope in order to see these at all. So Using the transit method, we're only getting a certain subset of planets around stars that are aligned in exactly this way. There are many, many more that are out there that don't cause an eclipse like this, where they a tiny dip in brightness. Now, this dim in brightness is small. You have a, a, a planet the size of Jupiter moving in front of the sun, for example, and viewed from many light years away, would only cause about a 1% dip in brightness. But a planet the size of Earth passing in front of a star would cause that star to dip in brightness by about one hundredth of one percent. So you've got to have very accurate detectors, detectors that are very uh, that are so precise that you can see dips in brightness that are so 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 small, well within the noise of a lot of other commercially available detectors. So. That's the transit method. It just measures a dip in brightness as a planet moves between us and the and the telescope. I'm sorry, as as a as the planet moves in between us and the star. And we can learn from this two things. We can learn first of all that there is an exoplanet of a certain size moving in front of the star. How how much the star dims tells us a lot about its size. And detectors have gotten so accurate now that they can, uh, they can get this down to within a really, really good, uh, small error bars. And we can also get its period of revolution. How, how many times it goes around or passes between us and the star will tell us how long its year is. So, um, a, a planet like the earth going around its star once every 365 days if we were looking at this from far away, we might see a dip in brightness on one day of 0.001%, one thousandths of 1%. And then 365 days later, we would see that same dip in brightness. That would tell us that, hey, there's a planet about the size of the Earth, based on its dip in brightness, that goes across around its star once every 365 days. So that's, those, those are two really big, important pieces of information we can get from the transit method. And most of the um, exoplanets that we found using this method um, were found with something called a large-scale survey. These were, these were surveys, that are, these are telescopes that look at really large areas of the sky uh, and measure tiny dips in brightness of all the different hundreds of thousands of stars in that field of view. Kepler was an example of that. It did a survey, but a survey only of the constellation of Cygnus. So that's the transit method. And we can learn from that. It's how big the star is physically and, and how many and how and the time of its year, how fast it goes around the star, how, how fast it goes around its star. Another way of 
finding exoplanets is looking as is called the radial velocity method. And here you need a spectro a spectrograph where you look at a star, the spectrum of a star, and it's got these dark absorption lines in it. And in the same way that a um you have redshift and blue shift of something coming towards you and away from you, you this the those those as a planet goes around its star, it pulls the spectrum left and right across the background spectra itself. And that is the motion of the star as it is being pulled gravitationally by whatever exoplanets are in orbit around it. So from the, in this wobble, this back and forth wobble as all of the planets are tugging on that star can tell us a lot of information. In fact, I'm always amazed at the amount of information that astronomers can get from this wobbling spectra. The easiest things you can get are the mass, and from this you can get the bulk density of the planet as well as its period by watching, but you know, you by watching this wobble and and, and the periodicity of the wobble, you can uh, get its year from this as well. So coupled with the transit method, we, where we can get the size and its year, the radio velocity method gives us its mass, a planet's mass, and its density, as well as its period. So now we've got all this information. We've got a size of a planet, the mass of the planet, how far away it is from the sun, how fast it goes around its star. These are the things that those two methods can teach us about whatever's in orbit around it. And there's one other method of finding these things I want to talk about, and that is called gravitational microlensing. And this one's complicated, but it uses the fact that light can be bent by the gravitational field of something else. So imagine a very distant background star, a star really, really far away. And moving in front of that star is, and between us and that very, very distant star, is another star that happens to have planets around it. Now, as that, cell, as that stellar system moves between us and a very, very distant background star, the light from that background star will brighten as the, as the foreground system moves in front. And, it will, and if there are any planets around that star, it will have these little characteristic bumps that also get bright as the planet moves in between us and the star. Now, as you can imagine, this is a tough measurement to make, and you've got to be lucky to get it because all the stuff, I mean, the stars literally have to align for this to work out. You've got to have a distant star, and you've got to have a, a system moving in between us and that distant star in such a way that we see this gravitational brightening of the foreground star and any planets that go around it. But people can people do this all the time. When you look at hundreds of thousands of stars at once over many different nights, and you, you can start to see these characteristic gravitational lensing brightenings that go on all over the field of view. And so it's a numbers game. The more stars you can observe, the more of a chance you've got to see this gravitational lensing effect go into play. And uh, you can find it. And that's this is a tougher measurement to make, but new telescopes are coming online now, like, for example, the Vera Rubin uh, telescope. It's a ground-based telescope. It's going to look at the entire night sky several times a week and bring in that data and people and automatically get uh, analyzed by um, by various machine learning algorithms and things like that, they will be able to look at every star in the night sky 
several times a week and look for these kinds of things. They'll be looking for transits, the dimming of stars. They'll be looking for these gravitational microlensing effects uh, from foreground star or foreground systems passing between us and background stars. And so we expect that when these kinds of survey telescopes come online, we will be able to have many, many more exoplanet candidates that come out as a result of all these observations. So it's exciting times. In fact, this is the golden era of looking for planets out in the galaxy. I should point out also that these techniques, because they they require such sensitive instruments and because they are so hard to make, we're looking... We're talking about stars primarily within our galaxy. We can't really do these observations in other galaxies just because we don't have the telescopes big enough to resolve the individual stars in those galaxies. Although I will say that the Hubble Space Telescope did look at the Andromeda Galaxy, which is our closest large galaxy to us. It did manage, Hubble did, to uh, create a mosaic of the Andromeda Galaxy such that the stars within it are actually resolved, but that took years to make. Over 500 pointings of the Hubble Space Telescope were required to make just that one image. So to see anything get brighter or dimmer, we'd have to do this a lot more times uh, to get any kind of data. So it's a, that's even harder to make uh, a measurement with other galaxies. So for now, we're sticking with exoplanet searches within our own Milky Way just because of the limitations of our space telescopes. So we've got three different ways of finding exoplanets. We've got transit, radio velocity, gravitational microlensing. Those are the three methods we use to find them. But as you can imagine, <laughs> we are, we're kind of biased in our observations. The kinds of planets that we're finding around other stars tend to be bigger because they're the dips in brightness are easier to see with things like hot Jupiters. Um, and they also tend to have short orbits. These are these are planets that go around their their star in matters of days, weeks, or months. That's their year. So and that's and that's so that we can get several light curves, several dips in brightness uh, throughout the course of its year in a relatively short amount of time. Using the Earth as an example, if we were trying to figure out the Earth's orbit from the transit method from a remote distant star, we would have to have at least two data points spaced 365 days apart. So we'd have to look at this star, our our sun, for well over a year, preferably several years, to get a good idea of the period of the Earth around the sun. So we tend to look, though, at our observations, for example, Kepler, one of the reasons it was designed to be up there for five years was so that it could get these longer period exoplanets. Over the course of five years, we've been, they've been able to discover planets that have orbits more like our Earth. But most of the exoplanets that we found have had these shorter years because just because they're easier to make. It's easier to see a hot Jupiter. It's easier to see short period exoplanets and confirm that they exist. So... Um, almost all of them tend to be these, these kinds of exoplanets, but because of Kepler and now TESS, we are able to get some, some statistics of the kinds of exoplanets that are out there. And it turns out that so far there are about 5,000 exoplanets that have been confirmed to exist. And what that means is that they have been observed by multiple different 
by multiple observatories in different spots around the Earth and in space to confirm that it actually exists. Satellites like Kepler and TESS will look at a star, see a dip in brightness, and then list it as a candidate because it isn't totally sure that there's a planet there. There could be other reasons for a star to dim in brightness besides having a planet moving in front of it. And so they need to eliminate those uh, those possibilities as before they call it an actual planet. So it's called a candidate at first. Kepler had Kepler objects of interest, KOIs. And as you can imagine, there's a TESS object of interest, a TOI. And they're put into a database that that ground-based observatories use to follow up observations with. And they, uh, they will try and confirm that there is, in fact, a exoplanet there. And they'll do this by looking at that star for a longer period of time, uh, hopefully a couple of years to get the uh, longer period light curves. Um, and they'll also use the transit method. I'm sorry. And they'll also use the radial velocity method on it with a spectrograph. Most space telescopes that use transits don't have onboard spectrographs, so they can't do the radial velocity method. And that's something ground-based telescopes are very well equipped to do. So they follow up with a ground-based radial velocity measurement. And then they say, this is a confirmed planet. And so far, there's been 5,000 of those. As you can imagine, there's many, many more thousands of candidates out there, but they haven't been confirmed yet. So most of the exoplanets that we find are these things called, I'm calling them hot Jupiters. These are, these are planets much, much bigger than Jupiter. They're close to their star, so they're actually hot in temperature. Uh, and they range you know, up to about the greater than sixth Earth radii. So they're six times larger than the radius of the Earth. So those are, those are Jupiter-sized and hot Jupiter-sized. And there's... Those are the most common that we've seen. And then there are Neptune-sized planets. These are planets that are between two and six times the radius of the Earth. Then there are super-Earths. These are planets that are between 1.25 and 2 times the radius of the Earth, so up to twice as big as the Earth. And then there's Earth-sized ones, which we're saying they're about you know plus or minus 0.25% of the Earth. Um, from Earth size up to about one and a quarter percent uh, of the radius. So those are the different categories they've got. And keep in mind that there is a difference between Earth size and Earth-like. That's a completely different statement. Earth size just means that. It's the size of the Earth. Super Earth would be roughly twice as big as our Earth. And then Neptune and, and these other ones would be even larger still. So these are all based on size of the Earth itself. Where we just one of the things I find both irritating and amusing uh, that I see in a lot of press releases from astronomers about new discoveries of exoplanets around other stars is they tend to embellish what they found with other things like this could be a water world or this could be a rocky earth and, and things like that. They they make these determinations based on combining the transit method with the radial velocity method to get its density. And then they say, well, if the planet is this size, twice the size of the Earth, and it's a super Earth, and if it's got a certain density from the radial velocity method, then it must be rocky. And they run models on this stuff based on their observations. They come up with these other things. But it's important to remember that all we really know, all that we can actually 
observe and measure as the size and the density and the period of the of these exoplanets. Nothing else. Everything else comes out of running models on these things and inferring things about the star and the distance from the star and the density and all of this kind of other stuff. So we need to be careful about what we call these different things. We really don't know all that much. And what we do know is inferred. Nobody has yet actually directly observed an exoplanet and resolved it with the telescopes that we have right now. That's something that the James Webb Space Telescope is going to do when it comes online later this year. One of the first things it's going to do in the first year of observations is it's going to look at the TRAPPIST-1 system, and it's going to look at TRAPPIST-1D in particular to directly. It's going to, it, it has the ability to block out the light from the star, TRAPPIST-1, and see, directly visually see the exoplanet itself. That's something we can't do right now. We have to infer its existence by dips and brightness of a star or the gravitational tug of the planets as it goes around. So we're not making direct obser observations yet of planets. We're only inferring them from the effects that it has on the things that we can see. So it's important to remember all of this. We've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves in talking about exoplanets, I think. We need to kind of back up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> just say what you can say about these observations and don't embellish it too much. I've heard stuff about water worlds and atmospheres. We don't need, we can't detect atmospheres yet. James Webb will be able to, the, that space telescope will be able to detect atmospheres, but that's it. Okay. So what about habitability? This is something else that I think astronomers play fast and loose with. Habitability is a complicated topic. Looking here on Earth, Earth is a habitable planet. Obviously, that's the one data point we know where life can exist. But even there's even places on Earth that are uninhabitable. The highest peaks of the Himalayan out oh, of the Himalayans, you can't live. Um, you can go there, but you can't really live there. So I would call that uninhabitable. The deepest parts of the ocean are also uninhabitable parts of the planet Earth. So even within a habitable planet, there are places that are uninhabitable. So what astronomers tend to do, and I guess I don't see a big problem with this, is they go, okay, well, one of the first things we have to, we have to say about a habitability of a planet is, can liquid water exist there if it had any water? And so that's what you hear. Then, so they defined this thing where liquid water can exist around a given system as the habitable zone. And that's it. Now, obviously, it takes a lot more than liquid water to make a place habitable, but this, that's the starting point. So this habitability zone, this habitable zone of a star, is this region around that star where if a planet were in there, and if that planet had some water, then that water would be liquid or because of the temperature and the, you know, all this other stuff. It says nothing else about the other parts of a habitable planet that one would need. Things like, you know, organic molecules or, or uh, you know, what is the planet tidally locked to its system and all of that kind of stuff. I think a planet that is tidally locked to its star is would be a very hard place for life to thrive. Imagine... One side of the planet is always in daylight. The other side is always in darkness 
because the rotation of the planet matches its revolution around the star, that would make for some weird weather if it had an atmosphere, if it could even keep an atmosphere under those conditions. So we don't know a lot about what planets are habitable or which ones aren't. Um, the most prompt, some of the most promising ones though, tend to be around red dwarf stars. Why? Red dwarf stars are stars that are smaller than our sun. They're cooler than our sun. They, they glow red because of the, that's why they're called red dwarfs. And they are the most numerous kind of star in our galaxy. They also have one other important characteristic. They live for trillions of years. Now, a lot of people who look at our solar system look at it and go, this is a pretty special place because the amount of times that it took for life to, to arrive and thrive here was relatively quick after the sun began to shine. It's been around for 5 billion years, and it's going to be around for another 5 billion more. That, however, is a pretty short time scale uh, as far as stars go. Red giant red dwarf stars live for trillions of years. That's tens of hundreds of times longer than our sun. And this would give life a heck of a lot better chance to form because it has so much longer to do it with, especially if you've got a, a planet with a liquid water on it around a star that is trillions of years old. You have a lot of time for life to, to form there. So astronomers are looking there first. They want to, in fact, Dave Jarbino actually said to me once in a, in a meeting, he goes, it's going to be, we're going to find it around a red dwarf star first. And he's very excited about those um, just because they are around so long. They do have the unfortunate characteristic that early in their lives, they tend to be very active and put out a lot of radiation. But after that, they settle down and could become a good harbor for life. So the question of habitable is one of, of is a very complicated one. Red dwarfs are the most promising looking star. Trappist one, not coincidentally, is a red dwarf star, and it has let's see, uh, B, C, D, E, F, G, eight. I think it's got seven planets in orbit around it. All of them are rocky many of them within the habitable zone of the, the star itself, D being the most promising, and that's the one that JWST is going to look at this year. So that's a little bit about exoplanets. I love this topic. I didn't get into anywhere near as much as I wanted to. I think we'll I'll, I'll make a, a, a podcast in the future on life in the universe where I'll talk about this a little bit more. What? How likely is it for life to... Uh, to begin and thrive and what conditions would they need to be? Because that's also a part of this study of exoplanets, but I'm kind of out of my time right now. And, uh, I will do that in another podcast episode. So what do you guys think? Exoplanets have any questions? Let me know. Uh, space junk podcast at deepastronomy.com. I'll be standing by. This is Space Junk Podcast. All right, everybody. So you've got yourself a basic imaging telescope, or at least you've got a set of, set of equipment. You want to you want to start using it on something, but you don't know where to start. It happens all the time. Where should you begin imaging? Uh, and what are some really good first targets to get your feet wet on this hobby. So that's the topic of this segment. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how to choose a target 
to get your very first images. So Dustin, you've talked several times about when you guys started, you had a Dobsonian wasn't well suited for uh, getting images, but then you got a basic system that you felt much better with. Mm-hmm. Where did you go first? <laughs> Where did you start? Uh, I started with the bright targets. You know, I was in, I was in Nashville, uh, Tennessee, which is, it, there's a lot of light pollution. And in, right. anywhere east of the Mississippi, you're going <laughs> to deal with light pollution, yes, you man. know, and it, it's just part of life. Um, but because of that, it was, I, I would find the targets I could. And the easiest one to find was the Orion Nebula. So I remember taking a lot of pictures of the Orion Nebula and a lot of pictures of the Lagoon Nebula. Because those two are both very bright and relatively easy to find. The Orion Nebula is extremely easy to find. Um, and so it's a good place to start. And I'd say the majority of people getting started, I always hear that what people are starting with is the Orion Nebula if it's that time of year. you know. And right now, luckily it is. It's the perfect time to shoot the Orion Nebula. Yeah. Um, but you know, starting with bright targets makes everything a lot easier because the first exposure, you're going to be able to see that it's there. And then from there, you're just kind of fine tuning your focus and your exposure times and all of those things to collect, you know, the images that you want. Whereas when you start with something really faint and I jumped in, I, you get a little, you get these confidence boosts (laughs) after shooting something like the Orion Nebula and you're like, oh man, I'm going to go after this like super faint, dusty stuff, you know, and then either the light pollution or the exposure times involved or, you know, just whatever it is, just your lack of experience. It's humbling very quickly, but I would say start with really bright targets, um, and go from there. And especially if you're in light pollution and a lot of light pollution, then the bright targets are going to be your savior. That's what's going to make life good for you. Um, so yeah, I, that's so if I'd you're say. in the Northern hemisphere and it's winter time, there's a whole lot of things to choose from the mm-hmm. Ryan Nebula's one, the, uh, the Rosette Crab Nebula right next door. The Rosette Nebula is another, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, but it's real. The Crab Nebula is awesome, M1, but it's it's really really challenging to shoot, and it's really small. Um, yeah, I guess that would be that's probably yeah. not the best first choice. So yeah, that's more <laughs> okay. like uh, the last thing you're gonna shoot. Oh, you know? sorry. Okay, see, it went <laughs> off my theme, didn't I? Uh, yeah, Tony, like that's yeah, like throwing... really crappy advice. Don't don't do Crab Nebula. <laughs> right away this thing you got to have three thousand millimeters of focal length to go after with three nanometer you know hydrogen hour long exposures okay yeah yeah yeah. no No, it's uh it's an incredible target but to shoot it well it is very very challenging um but you're right though that that region just the orion if you can find the orion constellation which you can find from um just about any light pollution it's very very bright and so if you can find that constellation basically anywhere you point your camera at Orion is going to show you some kind of nebula. Yeah. They're everywhere in that constellation. Even Barnard's loop basically wraps around the entire left side of the yeah. constellation. It's huge. The Horsehead yeah. Nebula is right there. I mean, that's a crowd favorite. Everybody loves the Horsehead Nebula. I now, do. is that a beginner? Is that a beginner episode one? Because I would you say can no. You definitely see it. And I would say shoot really? it just to see it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Right. Even with a 30, 40 second exposure on most systems, especially these fast refractors that everybody's getting started with now. Um, yeah, you put a camera on the back and you point it at the left star of Orion's belt and you'll see the uh, Horsehead Nebula and Flame Nebula right there. You know? Yeah, yeah it's right so off of Zeta Orionis. And you want to make sure you don't have it in the field of view when you image, though, because otherwise it'll just blow out the uh, the nebula itself the star will okay yeah. 
All right, so bright objects, any planets that happen to be up, absolutely go for them. Um, mm-hmm. What about the moon? If the moon's up, is that an easy target for starting yeah, out? Yeah, the moon, I still think, you know, I've I've been shooting just about every single night for years, five years now and six years or more. Maybe it's more, man. I've, I've lost track of time. Like time <laughs> stopped for me when COVID started. So I, don't, I have no idea anymore, like it, where we're even at. But um, yeah, the moon is still one of my favorite things to shoot and it never, ever disappoints. So it's one of the first things if the moon's out for two reasons, one, it makes everything else more difficult to shoot. Cause it's essentially just this gigantic offender in the sky for light pollution. <laughs> yeah. You may as well just shoot the moon because yeah. everything else is messed up. Yeah. It's like the world's <laughs> worst, the universe's worst street lamp for astrophotographers <laughs> on earth. Um, <laughs> you know, it is it, actually it's it is especially a full moon. It is, My it's, God, it's terrible. Astrophotographers hate the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's their lunar the ones, right? Yeah, nuke it. yeah. Um, but yeah, it um, it's amazing to shoot, and it's it's obviously very easy to find, <laughs> which <laughs> makes it a pretty easy target. Expo- um, exposure times are short, yeah. so you don't gotta worry about tr- a lot of tracking issues. So yeah. even even if you polar alignment. If you find that the moon is challenging for you to find, um, it's probably the wrong hobby. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Oh, my God. Where did that come from? What is no, that thing up there? It's no, big and it's round. You know, I get a lot of questions about astronomy. Like, what did I see the other night? You know, like, what was that? What was that bright light up in the sky? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, it's a uh, full moon then, tonight. I'm going to take a picture, <laughs> but I'm just having a lot of trouble finding it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, yeah, I just can't see it right now. Yeah. Uh, so, all right, all right. So it's no, easy but, to get to. Seriously, I mean, I, I will say that that's one of the easier targets to shoot because it's so unbelievably bright that you can shoot it with just about anything and uh, and get cool images from it. And, um, you know, you don't have to do long exposure. So even if you're having some tracking issues or you're not guiding or any of those things, you can still get really awesome exposures. And it's fun to take pictures of the moon and see what the camera sees and how it's different than what, you know, your eye can pick up because it'll get a lot of those mineral colors that your eye just simply can't. And, um, it's really fun to process moon images and see what you can pull out of them. But yeah, I would say that's a really, really great beginner target as well. Andromeda is another one that I think there you go. I was just about to bring that up. Let's talk about the Andromeda galaxy. Go ahead. Yeah. It's another one. Um, if you can find Cassiopeia, which I think it's probably my favorite, uh, constellation. I love Cassiopeia, (laughs) but if you can find, uh, Cassiopeia, the top portion of it points to Andromeda. So it becomes pretty easy to find once you, you know, if you can figure out the star hopping process from Cassiopeia over to it, you can find it pretty easy. You point your camera in that direction and uh, Andromeda is huge. It's what, six full moons across in the sky. Yep. So it's huge. Yep. That's its actual it's huge. size, not an yeah. apparent size. That's its real size across the sky. Yeah, yeah. So, so it uh, it's massive and it's easy to find. So, um, you know, that's another really good one. In shooting another galaxy, there's something that's just, I don't know. There's there's something that kind of takes your breath away the first time. Like nebulas are awesome. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're my favorite thing to process because they're colorful. And when I process images, I really try to push all the colors you know, to a point where I usually get messages from people like, why are you making them look so fake? You know? mm-hmm. But I think that there's something that's just truly magical about shooting a galaxy, another galaxy than the one that we, you know, inhabit for the first time. When you go out and you take that photo and you see Andromeda pop up on your camera, even if it doesn't look good, just seeing it there 
there's something that will knock the breath out of you the first time you do it. Yeah, another good one is uh, the Whirlpool Galaxy M51 right yeah. above. Uh, it's right off the tip of the uh, handle of the Big Dipper. It's a good thing to get in the summer and fall. Right. Um, yeah, it's right over your head. Well, if mm-hmm. you're in the Northern Hemisphere uh, in the in the summertime, uh, very bright and uh, easy to get. It's a beautiful spiral galaxy. It's one of my favorites, too. So yeah. it's, it's a face on. You're seeing it from above. And uh, it's just a beautiful object. Um so that's another galaxy. You, you could yep, definitely another look great at. one. That that one is amazing. That might be my favorite galaxy to shoot, actually. Um, but yeah, and, and again, not hard to find either. If you can find the Big Dipper, you can you can star hop from there to um, the Whirlpool, and mm-hmm. you know, and take your photos. But I would say just looking for things that are bright and not going after the targets that are going to really require a lot of work. You know, the some of these that that do require a lot of filters or, or other, um, long exposures, things like that. Yeah. Super long exposures. You know, I would say one of the things I, I struggled with and, and it's not everybody, but I struggled with the North America nebula and it's such a tempting target to go after because it's huge. It's huge. Um, but I, you know, from a light polluted sky without filters, it's very, very challenging. And, um, you know, it's one that I got, frustrated when I first got started because I'd gotten these great images of the Lagoon Nebula and I was like, this one's even bigger. Why can't I get these amazing images to pop? And all I could see was just a very faint uh, red hue in my images. So I knew I was there, but I just couldn't get the image to pop. And so I would say, you know, look for those those images that are really going to stand out and and be bright. And you can typically tell from looking around at images online, which which targets those are going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I just want to throw out one more. Uh, one of my favorites is the Ring Nebula in uh, the constellation Lyra. That's a good summer and fall con- uh, thing to get to get in the northern hemisphere as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So definitely check that out. You won't, you won't need a very long exposure time on that. I want to talk about exposure times just a minute, but let me just, if you're in the southern hemisphere, I don't want to neglect you guys. you got to go and look at the large and small Magellanic clouds. Those are naked eye right. objects from your part of the world. Definitely yeah. start with those, man, because those are they're, those are dwarf galaxies. They're orbiting around the Milky Way, and they are very old, much older than the Milky Way. So check them out. Definitely start imaging with those. So we're talking about first images. People should go out with their telescope. They've never taken images before. Some things to look at. Uh, these are good ideas, but what about exposure times? I mean, I know it depends a lot on your gear, but let's say that people have a modest aperture of say, I don't know, three to five inches. What kind of exposure mm-hmm. times should these guys do on these brighter objects we've been talking about? Most people now are starting with telescopes that are three or four inch telescopes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I would say that that's, that's very, uh, it's very common that people are starting with that and you see the images they're producing with people are taking NASA a pods with those, you know, three inch telescopes. So it's not something that you have to worry like, Oh, I'm not gonna be able to get a good image. No, you can get some of the best images in the world and people are all the time with small telescopes. Um, so, you know, going after those wide targets, you're going to have an advantage with those small telescopes. So really, like, don't don't feel bad if that's what you got. A lot of people are going from big big telescopes to small telescopes for that reason. Um, but looking at exposure times, I think it depends on what you're trying to shoot exactly. Um, well, 
well, of course it does, right? But uh, take, for instance, like the moon. We just talked about the moon. Shooting the moon and shooting the Orion Nebula are going to be two very different things. The moon's going to require less than a second, like a fraction, probably a thousandth of a second or something like that. Whereas the Orion Nebula, you're probably going to want to do like 30 second exposures. And there's a little bit of trial and error when you're a beginner. As you as you shoot this more and more, it just becomes something that you don't even think about anymore. You're like, oh, for this, I need, you know a 10 minute exposure for this target. I only need five seconds or whatever it is. But basically if the target isn't showing up bright enough on your screen and the image isn't blown out due to light pollution, then push the exposure longer and you'll be able to get more from it. Um, you know, and that's, that's if all other things are equal, you're not adjusting your ISO, you're not adjusting your F ratio, you know, due to the aperture, if it's a camera lens. Um, so, you know, if all things are equal, then you can push the exposure time and allow more photons to come in. And that's really what you want to do. So uh, push the exposure and, and try to see, but trial and error is the best way getting started and go for the bright target. So something like the Pleiades, we didn't even mention M45. All right, the, the open cluster. You know, yeah. the, the Subaru car logo, right? That, <laughs> that's right. It is. Yeah, it is. It is. And um, I would say that's that's one of the best targets out there too because you you know it's it's a big target it's super easy to find very very bright and um you know you can point the telescope at it and it's got all of this incredible blue that shows up when you take a picture of it with um you know with a telescope so I'd say that's another really good one but because the stars are so bright it's a really good place too to kind of learn exposure times because what you'll find is you you want to push the exposures longer and longer. At a certain point, the stars get so blown out that they dominate the image and it doesn't look good anymore. So it kind of teaches you how to control getting the stars the size you want them without blowing out the images, um, but also being bright enough to still be interesting. Yeah, uh, and and a lot of these things are so bright that you could pretty much see them in your preview screen while you're focusing or doing whatever, uh, uh, getting set up and getting it centered yeah. properly. If these are so Definitely. bright, they'll probably show up there. Planets, uh, same kind of thing. You're looking at maybe uh, uh, anywhere from sub-second to couple-second exposures. Uh, and then what a lot of people do is add these up. They add them together with software. That's a topic mm -hmm. for another day. But but just picking whether it's the moon, the planets, and some of these brighter deep sky objects, you could probably get a lot of the uh, feel for your exposure time just when you're setting up looking at the preview screen. So right. um, that might, might, might make things just a little bit easier. Okay. Well, that's good. So go again. And go and image some of these things. Uh, all of these are amazing stuff. Uh, they're also really great visual <laughs> targets as well, uh, but they'll be even more amazing through a camera lens, uh, through a camera processing setup that you may have. So definitely go out and check out some of these. Uh, the brighter objects will not let you down, especially on a moonless night. <laughs> some of these right. are anyway. Okay, cool. This is Space Junk Podcast. So in between episodes, I sit in front of my computer and I hit the refresh button, waiting for new emails to come up from you guys with questions or comments about the podcast. I keep telling you every episode to please email me. Let me know what you think. Give me questions or comments. So I sit at my computer and I hit the refresh button until someone emails me. So ju I just needed you to know that, that that's what I'm doing. Well, at last week, as I was sitting there hitting my refresh button, an email comes 
from Nick, who listens to the podcast. Yay, Nick. Thank you for sending me this email. This was the one about black holes. Nick here. I'm reading the email now. I was listening to you talk about black holes and light not being able to escape. I have my own theory, and I was wondering if you could help me understand why I am most likely wrong. Here it is. Is it that light cannot escape a black hole, or that due to relativity, light has not escaped yet? With that much gravity, time should relatively slow way, way down, and perhaps it would take light a hundred billion years to finally escape, in which maybe black holes become the brightest objects in the night sky, and perhaps visible in the day sky. Okay, Nick, well, thanks for that. My first email question happens to be a really hard one, one that I'm hopefully going to be able to not make too confusing in my response. This is complicated stuff we're talking about here. So I'll do the best I can. What you're referring to is this thing called time dilation, which is another feature of Einstein's general relativity. And let me just give you a brief overview of what that is. Time dilation is the difference in the elapsed time as measured by two clocks. It is either due to relative the relative velocity between the two clocks, one clock going much faster than another clock, or to a difference in gravitational potential between their locations. Now, most of the time we talk about time dilations, we're talking about moving clocks, one relative to another. So with time dilation, and with in fact, with anything related to relativity, you need to ask the question, relative to what? <laughs> so I'm going to read from Wikipedia. And it says here, after compensating for various signal delays uh, due to the changing distance between an observer and a moving clock, the observer will measure the moving clock as a ticking slower than a clock that is at rest. So it is true that a clock that's moving uh, will tick slower than a clock that is at rest. And it's also true that a clock that is close to a massive body, like a black hole, will record less elapsed time than a clock situated further away from that massive body or black hole. So these differences in times are based on two observers and different reference frames. When I say that light cannot escape from a black hole, I am talking about the gravitational well, the bending of space-time that is so strong that the to get out of it would require a, an escape velocity that is greater than light can travel. So light falls in, but it cannot go fast enough to turn around and come back out or go through it in any way. It gets trapped. To escape a black hole, you would need to go faster than the speed of light. And that is an ultimate speed limit also set by this theory. So black holes are the ultimate one-way ticket. And it's, it's not the case that light just has slowed down, that time dilation for that uh, uh, beam of light has slowed down to the point that it hasn't gotten out yet. It can't get out. Now, but you have touched on an interesting point. If you watch an astronaut falling into a black hole, 
and you're standing well away from it in a safe distance away, and, an, and another astronaut is going into the black hole. And he sends a pulse of light as he is approaching the black hole. Then you would see that pulsing get slower and slower and slower as he falls in. And eventually what you'll see when he hits the event horizon is that the observer will appear to you to freeze due to this time dilation gravitational potential effect. And the, and the blinking will stop. He will appear frozen on the event horizon of that black hole. So the reason light can't get out is that in order for it to get out, it must travel faster than is allowed by general relativity. But these other effects, like time dilation, like you're talking about, does play an, a role here around black holes because clocks move slower when they are closer to a strong gravitational well compared to those or relative to those that are outside of that frame of reference. It's always something you got to say when you're talking about relativity. Relative to what? And there are these are called frames of reference in the in the jargon of relativity. So, Nick, thank you for the question, and I was very happy to make you more confused. Um, I hope that you guys will continue to email me. This is fun. Now, Anchor has a way. I upload these episodes to Anchor.fm, and then it gets distributed its own by Spotify, and the, and it gets distributed all over the place uh, uh, to the different RSS feeds for whatever you're reading it to. It has this feature, and I don't know how it quite works, but if you you can leave a response to me, a voice response, if you listen to it on Anchor, and I get that recording, and I can play it, and then we can kind of have a sort of a recording uh, session going here. <laughs> so think about doing it that way. Space Junk Podcast or Space Junk, either one, both, both work, at deepastronomy.com. I am standing by my browser, hitting the refresh button as we speak. So please send me an email. Tell me what you think of all this stuff and send me a question. I'll do my best to answer and or confuse. Obfusca obfuscation, it's called. I'm a good disambiguator. <laughs> I first heard that term when I was learning Java. Disambiguate. That is my job here. Or to ambiguate. Either way. All right, folks, that's it for this episode. Thank you all so much for joining me and listening. If you are hanging in there this late in the episode, you are hardcore and I appreciate you. Thank you for listening. Share this with your friends. Tell me what I can do in this podcast that you would like to hear. And I'll be happy to. There's a lot of science communicators out there. So let's make this different. And I'll take my cues from you guys. All right. Thank you all so much for taking your time out to listen to this. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. <laughs>